you know, you want every member to have a quarterback for their care. And that quarterback is most often the primary care provider. And in that relationship, accountability for cost and quality, total cost and quality, where the risk matters. And it's that risk part that's the hardest. Welcome to the first show of season four of The ACO Show. Today, Josh is joined by Dr. Rahul Rajkumar, Chief Operating Officer at Optum Care Solutions. Dr. Rajkumar shared insights on the difference between designing healthcare models at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, and implementing them at different payers. They discussed some key principles learned from CMMI research that can help improve the healthcare system, why it's so important to have a primary care physician as the quarterback at the center of each patient's healthcare, and some of the national challenges around access to behavioral health services. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a medical director at Elevate. And I'm joined today by Rahul Rajkumar, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Optum Care Solutions. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Josh. So you've had a, a, a career with a pretty impressive span. You are a physician and an attorney, um, and your places of employment have included Medicare, uh, Blue Cross North Carolina, now at Optum. Um, I'd love to start with uh, your time at, 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 at Medicare, at the Medicare Innovation Center. Uh, and in particular, after uh, being at a place like that, really the one of the main places uh, in America, maybe even the world, designing healthcare models, what you found is different about designing healthcare models and trying to implement them when you went from working at CMMI to working at, at different payers. Yeah, so thank you for having me here, Josh. I, you know, CMMI for me, I think of it as my my PhD in in healthcare. Uh, payment reform. And it was just a tremendous learning experience. And, you know, it was, it was early days of payment reform. And it was taking theory and, and trying to make it real. You know, many of the people that you work with at Alidade, like Sean Kavanaugh, Farzad Mastachari, uh, your leaders were my teachers. Uh, so I remember you know, in my, my first weeks at CMMI, uh, apprenticing myself to Sean and just following him around and writing down everything that he said. And uh, so I, Sean was really my, my first teacher in this world. The last 10 years of my career have, have really been about taking everything that I learned there from Sean, from others, and trying to apply it first in, in the federal payment reform programs, but then in the commercial world. And, and the biggest difference to your question is that when you do things in the commercial world, say at a Blue Cross plan, you have to negotiate them. So the, the biggest pivot is moving from a, a voluntary federal program where you have open applications like the MSSP, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, or in a couple of cases, a mandatory federal program where you're doing something by fiat, to doing something where you really have to negotiate the terms with providers. And uh, it, it creates a whole host of new challenges. What, what can you standardize? What can you be flexible on? And, and how do you get the thing across the line? Uh, that, that's probably the biggest single difference. You went from uh, CMMI, uh, soon after that you were at Blue Cross North Carolina. Uh, Allidade works with a lot of payers and Blue Cross North Carolina is very impressive. It really is sort of like a parish in the twenties you know, as far as the innovation going on at a commercial payer. Uh, how did that come to be in North Carolina? 
Yeah, so you know, we had a wonderful uh, CEO in Patrick Conway um, for the time that I was there. The idea that he had in his head and that I had in my head was that we were going to take everything that we learned in the government and try and apply it in the commercial space. And I, I have this line that I use when I give talks that, that Patrick absolutely hates, but I believe it to be true. It's like, we spent $10 billion of, of taxpayer money at CMMI to learn like five things. And that's what that's what we did in North Carolina is, is take those five things and try to apply them in the commercial space. And and we, you know, one of the things that we did was to announce pretty big goals when we started of, of moving the entire membership into value-based contracts. Uh, and, and then an intermediate goal of getting half of our members into uh, value-based contracts, meaning that half of our members by the end of 2023, according to our goal, ought to have a, a provider that's accountable for their total cost of care and quality. And so to do that, you have to build the program and then you have to operate at multiple levels of the delivery system. So we had a pathway for systems. We had a pathway for, for independent providers that led to the Allidator relationship. Uh, we had a pathway for what I'd call advanced primary care providers uh, like Iora Health uh, or Galileo. But you know, the answer to your question is we, we learned a lot in the federal government um, at great cost in time and money and wanted to take everything we learned and apply it. So if, if each of these five learnings is worth $2 billion, I think, I think I'd like to hear them. Yeah, no, I, I would like to share them. So think of these in terms of design principles. If you are re-engineering a commercial network. So one is that you, you know, you want every member to have a quarterback for their care. And that quarterback is most often the primary care provider. And in that relationship, accountability for cost and quality, total cost and quality where the risk matters. And it's that risk part that's the hardest. Very few providers wake up and are like, gee, I would love to take two-sided risk for total cost of care. And it really requires a payer that's committed to that goal. And um, makes the alternative as unappealing as possible. So two principles, risk matters, but two is you have to make the alternative as unappealing as possible. And we did that by holding unit price increases or rates flat across the network for providers, unless they were willing to make a commitment to manage total cost of care and quality. Another is that you have to have a valid theory of change. So in, in the Medicare ACO programs, the theory of change is that you can manage transitions of care, you can reduce the use of hospitals, uh, you can shift post-acute utilization from institutions to the home, from higher acuity settings to lower acuity settings, and, and that's what drives most ACO saving. In the commercial world, it's a little bit different. Most of the savings, I think, occur from shifts in uh, the use of specialty care. So as the primary care provider, if you're the quarterback, where do you send, where do you throw the pass? You know, where do you send the referrals? And are you choosing specialists judiciously? And are you choosing specialists that are aligned with your, your goals and, and your practice style? Another is so just the, the specific design of the incentive architecture matters. And, and I cheated a little, it's not really five things because each of these explodes in complexity, but Let's call this one just incentive architecture. I, 
you know, to pick one piece of it, we think that prospective benchmarking is important um, to give a provider a, a budget in advance. Um, now that was severely tested during COVID in a way that we had not really anticipated. So prospective budgeting can break in, in extraordinary times. And then the last two are, you know, I think the composition of ACOs is important. We believe, and I, I'm sure you would agree with this, and given where you work, Josh, um, that the composition of an ACO is important and that you'll see the biggest bang for your buck in independent independent primary care providers, independent mm -hmm. PCPs. Uh, we see that from the Medicare Shared Savings Experience clearly and, and really believe that. And so we wanted to preserve the independence of as many primary care providers in North Carolina as possible. And the last one uh, is either you want to give providers the flexibility to re-engineer care under their risk contracts. So in, in Medicare land, uh, this led to all sorts of things like telehealth waiver, the three-day uh, three stay waiver for SNF admissions. Uh, you know, we have a whole apparatus of rules that are designed for fee-for-service providers, so controls on fee-for-service spend. But when the provider's in risk, particularly in two-sided risk, and they're, they're in true partnership with the payer, you can reimagine those rules. And the analog in the commercial world is prior authorization. So a lot of those things can be de-escalated and stood down uh, when the providers are in risk. So that that's that's what we learned. I and I wasn't counting along the way. I hope I kept to five. But <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I lost count too. The the um, the principles that you're describing are they ones that apply to any system? Or are they moving us towards a particular goal? And what I mean by that is, I don't think many people would say that uh, you know a free market medical system is going to be the best system for providing you know the best care to the most people. Uh, to the degree that we've had a free market healthcare uh, healthcare system in this country, we saw that it de denied a lot of people health insurance. You know, it was barely even a system at all, more an accumulation of various healthcare industries. In countries where they have single payer, I don't think they feel like they've reached the brass ring. You know, their healthcare is great and everybody should do exactly what they're doing and their, and their systems don't need tinkering. Uh, so when you describe these principles, is it moving us towards a sort of platonic ideal of a healthcare system? Do you have a final vision in mind that we should all be going towards? Or are they general principles that improve whatever system you have to work with? Yeah, so I think, I think Josh, maybe we're, we're um blending a couple of different concepts here. So there's there's one layer of health policy or systems thinking where we're talking about how we finance healthcare. And so your options are uh, single payer, fully socialized, or you know some sort of regulated uh, public-private system, which is what we're evolving towards in the United States. And and you know most of my work really doesn't touch those issues. This, the second layer of question though is how you pay the providers. There, I, I do have a platonic ideal in my mind, which is that I think that every American uh, ought to have a primary care provider, and they ought to have a particular type of primary care provider. So a, a provider that is a quarterback of their care. If you're a patient, your, your primary care provider is your go-to resource. They're available to you. They are your guide in the rest of the healthcare system. They help you make decisions about when to see a specialist about when to be admitted to the hospital. They manage your transitions of care and they are accountable for your total cost of care and the quality of care and experience of care. 
that you have in the delivery system. And you know they are the person you call uh, during critical moments in the evolution of your health. You know they're they're involved in your care and decision making at the end of your life. That requires a different level of investment in primary care. And the models that we're talking about here, ACO models, are really built around primary care. And it's we're striving towards that type of of platonic ideal. And I think you know if you compare us to other countries. The United States is probably a step behind other industrialized countries in the financing of care, but in terms of payment innovation for primary care, I I feel like we are um, in a golden age of of experimentation and innovation, and and many other countries do look to us uh, for for how we're changing the payment structures. So I I think I hear you saying that the the ideal, or at least one unideal, is that everybody be connected to a primary care provider who oversees their care, and as far as how to get there, many paths up that mountain. And we're trying to fine tune the the payment system um, to have a shared alignment with that. Does that sound right? That sounds right. I, I agree with that. You are now the Chief Operating Officer at Optum. Um, I'd love it if you could actually just tell us what Optum is. I know most people are familiar with United Healthcare. It's, uh, it does surprise some people to learn it's the largest uh, health insurance provider in America. Uh, I guess after Medicare and Medicaid, largest private insurer. Um, but what what is Optum within United Healthcare? So United Health Group is the the parent company. It has an insurance company, which is United Healthcare, and then Optum is the um, think of it as the diversified business group. Optum has a pharmacy benefit manager. It has a, a data and analytics company, which is Optum Insights, and then it has Optum Health. One of the parts of Optum Health and the part that I work on. Is called Care Solutions, and uh, Care Solutions is a collection, a family of companies that is basically trying to make healthcare better, uh, improve its quality, make it more efficient. Some of the companies in this larger family are companies like Landmark that provide care in the home, primarily to Medicare Advantage uh, beneficiaries, uh, Navi Health, which manages uh, post-acute care, um, Optum at Home which manages care in the home for uh, DSNP, so duly eligible uh, special need plan beneficiaries. Um, and then there are a few others in the stack, but broadly it's uh, a family of businesses that are trying to make healthcare better and improve its quality. And what are your goals? I, just as I said, I mean, we're, we're trying to make healthcare more efficient, improve its quality. I, there are a couple of themes. One is to provide you know, increasing care in the home, you know, high quality care in the home, and if you look at the history of American medicine, and let's go back 75 years, you know, in the in the 1940s and 50s, almost half of care was delivered by providers in patients' homes. You know, think of the the physician carrying around a doctor's bag, and something changed. The locus of care became the clinic, and often, unfortunately, the hospital. And we're trying to bring back uh, the doctor's bag. You know, we think for a lot of patients, meeting them where they live and seeing them in their their home environment is the most effective and patient-centered way of delivering care. So that, that's one, one goal or theme. Another is uh, behavioral health. So we're making a lot of investments in behavioral health and trying to evolve the, the system for providing behavioral health care. We're in the midst of a national awakening that behavioral health care is actually important. 
and and you see many organizations and payers trying to uh, improve access in behavioral health care. One of the major challenges there is just the financing of behavioral health care and and how to um, how to draw more providers into insurance networks and how to improve access in behavioral health care. So that's broadly that's another goal and and another thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I actually love to focus on behavioral health for a moment. I, I am a psychiatrist, and I have spent a decent amount of time uh, at Allidade and before Allidade talking with uh, payers, um, trying to do exactly what you're saying, bring more behavioral health providers into their networks. You know, many there aren't enough behavioral health specialists in the country. Um, those that are out there have often gone off the grid and don't take insurance anymore. Um, I do hear payers talking about ways to bring them in, but I rarely hear them saying, let's just pay them a whole lot more, which seems to me the most obvious fix. Is that just not possible? Like, well, why is that that not discussed? Yeah, that's such a great and important question, Josh. Of course, it's, it is possible to pay a provider more. I mean, there's no law of the physical universe that prevents a payer from doing that. The challenge is that nobody wants their premiums to go up. We are operating in a world where you know, 25% or so of American families spend more than 10% of their annual income on healthcare. You know, even for people with employer-sponsored insurance, uh, and particularly for people on the exchanges, very high cost here. We're, we're trying to enhance access without making the total cost of healthcare go up and therefore premiums go up. And I say this with, with true sincerity. I'm not um, yeah, lobbying for a particular outcome that, you know, we all... And people who've sort of looked at the behavioral health space, and I'm, I'm sure you are aware of these, that are aware the behavioral health costs are a huge driver to the medical, uh, the cost in the medical system. So if we if we really believe that that's the case, that wouldn't bringing more behavioral health providers in through better payments reduce the costs in the end? I believe that that is a valid hypothesis, and that's precisely what we're trying to test at Optum. The leap, Josh, is from, from believing something to be true to proving it to be true. And when you when you operate within healthcare and you're, you know, whether you're at CMS and you have to prove something um, to the CMS actuaries, or whether you're in the commercial space and you have to prove it to a you know an actuary at your private payer, you do have to meet a certain bar uh, for evidence generation. And so what you just said, that if we if we invest in behavioral healthcare to improve access, to intensify our delivery of behavioral healthcare, can we make the total cost of care down, go down? And then can we harvest some of those savings? And some of it will be passed back to patients or, or members or consumers. Some of it will go back to behavioral healthcare providers to pay them more, as you said. Um, so the paying them more the idea is that it comes from harvesting some of the total cost of care savings. Mm -hmm. And, but you know, to get to that world, you have to prove that if you intensify your delivery of behavioral health care, you can actually make total cost of care go down. And that's what we're trying to do. So we're testing this in 12 different uh, experiments around the country with different behavioral health care providers, different payment systems, um, you know, basically different constructs that we're testing experimentally. Some of these are actually randomized controlled trials. The analog is, um, you know, is, is, is Allidade and, and ACOs. I mean, 10 or 12 years ago, 
on a podcast like this, we might have said, well, you know, if we spend more on primary care, won't we, won't we see a return on that investment? We had to go through a national process of, of testing that hypothesis. And that's what led to the, the creation and validation of the ACO programs. And, and that's why Elevate exists. So we're trying to, to engineer a similar process in the behavioral health space. So that is interesting for me to hear that, you know, if you go to uh, mental health conferences, it's, it's the gospel that, you know, if we just paid better, we could bring in more behavioral health providers and that would bring down the cost of care. You know, we, we have all these sort of case trials on it, but you're saying that it's not proven to a degree that the actuaries, you know, that the board of directors feels like that's a, that's a slam dunk at this point. If, if we had three hours, you and I together could parse the literature a bit. Um, what I, what I see in the, in the behavioral health care literature is associational that uh, patients with behavioral health conditions often have higher physical health spend. I, I truly believe that. When I was a third year medical student, which is now more than 20 years ago, I, one of the presentations I gave on my rotation was um, depression after myocardial infarction, after heart attack. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a topic, a, a very narrow clinical topic that has interested me. And, you know, I've worked with a number of payers and actually have seen in the data the, the difference in spend uh, for patients post-MI that have uh, comorbid depression versus not. But that's a different question than if you, if you intervene and treat that depression, will you produce a different cost trajectory? And I, 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 Josh, I feel like a bean counter in the way that I'm talking to you, but I, I you know, that's not, you know, if, if the goal is not to make healthcare costs go up, then we actually have to prove that we will produce a different financial trajectory. And that's a different, that's a different question from saying that one should treat behavioral health conditions and, and treat them well and provide a high quality of experience. Fully on board with that, I agree 100, 200%. Um, but I think we're coming at this from uh, a different angle where we have, we have financial constraints. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. No, I don't think you sound like a, you know, a, a bean counter or what have you. That um, this is actually really interesting for me to hear, uh, and because I've never been able to put it together, why seemingly everybody agrees that behavioral health, um, more behavioral health treatment would be good for the whole system, but then the payers still pay behavioral health providers less than everybody else in the system. Um, yeah, it, and I, I, yeah, I'm not trying to lobby, lobby that we make more money. It's just been a little bit mysterious to me. So this is, this is really interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are historical reasons for that that are related to the, the relative um, importance that people assign to behavioral health care. And I think, you know, it's, I think primary care had a similar experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the delivery systems for both primary care and behavioral care evolved according to those payment structures. And now we're, we're trying to, we're trying to course correct as a nation, you know, and, and trying to figure out how to do that without making total healthcare costs go up. Looking at uh, ACOs in particular, you know, you've worked um, on them at, at various, uh, various parts of your career. Um, and it sounds like you certainly still believe in the importance of independent primary care, and uh, which is one of the things that companies like Allidade help support. Um, any other sort of key learnings you've seen um, about how ACOs can uh, 
do their part the best to improve the healthcare system and bring down the cost of care. So I definitely would go back to the the design principles. I think I think risk matters. I think having um, the right strategy, technology, and and partners matters. And you know, I think I think really highly of the Allidate team. It's it, it's why we entered this deep partnership with the Allidate team in, in North Carolina when I was there. You know, in, in addition to designing the programs in an effective way, I mean, just having the right tools and the right the right partnership, the right enablers at the table, I think is the other important element. Well, Rahul Rajkumar, Chief Operating Officer of Optum Care Solutions, I really appreciate this great conversation. Thank you so much for having me here today, Josh.